at it. Keep going. Um, and we did, you know, we, we recovered and we kept doing good product and we were growing. And the next big thing that happened was a few years later, our, our factory burnt down. Like I had been there that day. I was there and I was in the parking lot. I finished my work that day. I'd been in the parking lot and I heard screams and a commotion and then people running around and then smoke was everywhere. And it didn't take long. And that thing was just up, just smoke everywhere. Every, you know, the, the f- at first floor there was, um, they worked with glue, gluing on like the, the foam seat cushions and gluing them together and stuff. And that glue in the air is really flammable. And so it caught and then it, and it was next to foam, next to cardboard, next to wood. It was just a mess. Our guest today had the opportunity to live in Taiwan and learn Mandarin Chinese at the age of 19. Where many people learn a foreign language, Brian Phillips used this knowledge to leverage into a life and a career living in China for 15 years. In China, he made relationships and a reputation that allowed him to build a thriving furniture business. Hear his amazing story with us today. Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. Hey, welcome to the Founders Podcast, everybody. Excited to share a special episode. A good friend of mine, Brian Phillips, is going to be joining us. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Excited Good to be here. Excited to have him on today. Brian's got an incredible story, and we'll learn a lot more about him. But to start off, Brian owns, runs, and manages Treasure Valley Interiors and has done so for about the last decade. He's an international businessman extraordinaire. He's been <laughs> to many different continents. He's done incredible things all over the world, including living in China for 15 plus years with his entire family. And we'll learn more about that as we get into it. So without further ado, Brian, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of cool to be here. Yeah. We're excited to listen. So Brian and I have a funny story because Brian was my neighbor. And when I first met Brian, I walked over with a few of my kids and he had just moved in. And I, we were talking and, and just kind of getting to know each other. And he said, oh, we just moved here from China. Costco's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Dairy Queen. And, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, that's interesting. I know, I know China, this is like a one in a billion chance, but I know one person that lived in China. It was Paul Karchner. And oh, yeah. like, oh, Paul? <laughs> oh, yeah. Paul was, man, that guy, he's legend over yeah, there. It's so funny because literally there's a billion people in China. <laughs> and he knew the one person that I knew. And so... <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to bring up the time you drove by and I was trying to wash our sequoia. And I was like up slipping top. up on top. <laughs> I like because your daughter, your daughter was filming you. That was the best part about that. No, yeah, lots of, 
I saw a lot of things going on in that house that I try to forget, to be honest, <laughs> when I drive by. <laughs> the police don't forget. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, so Brian, just to get started, if you could please describe your business, if you were to describe it to somebody that doesn't know anything, describe what you do, and describe what Treasure Valley Interiors does. Yeah, sure. Uh, so we, we design and manufacture upholstered furniture. Uh, we do it overseas. We manufacture it in China for the most part. Now also Vietnam and uh, working on Mexico as manufacturing bases. But we, we design and then sell to U.S.-based retailers or wholesalers. So furniture companies that you know of, like an R.C. Willie would be a customer, um, or Fred Meyer be a customer, Cost Plus World Market, those kind of retailers that sell upholstered furniture we sell directly to them as well as um, through sales agents or through wholesale companies. So we, I'll go and I'll, uh, I will work with these, the buyers from retail companies and we'll work on projects, specific sofas. We'll work out pricing for them and then we make it for them and ship it to them. That's kind of how it works. Awesome. Okay, yeah. cool. So you said you design, like I have imported some things from China. I'd sold some stuff on it anyway, but that was like white labeling, right? I'm just mm -hmm. taking someone, they're already making that. I'm just going to put my brand on it. Maybe make a few alterations. Yep. Um, and you're designing it yourself. Is it like you're, you just at home, walk me through that process. How much is you, you know, taking a design they already have and you just maybe alter it or are you really just from the scratch you're doing it? No, it's a combination, right? So mm -hmm. some, some retail companies are going to have their own in-house designers, Right, and they're going to come to us with designs that they things that they think are trending that they that they like and they want us to make. Other other times, it's literally me on websites looking for ideas, going to the high end. The furniture business is a real top down business where the design and all the creativity comes from the top. You don't necessarily look to Walmart for the fashion in the business, right? Yeah. You look to Europe and high end brands. And that's where you can, you start there and then make it fit for that particular customer. So the design, no, I'm not with a pencil and a paper drawing stuff out. No, nah, it's just a collaboration with customers. Some of them want it all from us. Others want, uh, they bring the design. So it's a, it's a mix. If that. You know, it does. Now, sense. when you say design, I mean, you're looking at this. Do you then have software? You go in there and you mess around with that. what that looks like? Or are you just, like, taking pictures and you're sending it over to your warehouse, your, your, your factory, I guess, right? Yeah, our product development guys okay. in, in China. And they're, uh, they're fantastic because they can take a photo. This sofa I'm sitting on right now, they could take a, I could take a photo, overall measurements, and they'd make it, like, 99%. Really? Equal. identical to mm -hmm. this you know it, it, it's all about photography and that's because these guys have been doing it a long time the chinese yeah. sample makers super good they're like the franchise player in the factory they they're the most important guy mm. really are um now vietnam's a little different vietnam they work more off of cad so cad drawings and such and that works for like uh wooden furniture tables desks um, things like that. We don't. We do less of that. But Vietnam was always uh, more on the wood furniture side, which is CAD based, not on upholstery. Interesting. So there's a there's a bit of both, but nice. 
So before we get in too much into that, we we want to go further back. Yeah, sure. And discuss. Did you grow? Where did you grow up? And Parma, Idaho. Parma, Idaho. Yeah, go. I grew up just like forty five minutes west of here. Gotcha. Little town. And so yeah. was that on a farm? Parma, for those viewers, the uh, our my mom and Jordan's mom that are listening, is pretty far away from Boise, but it's more of a agrarian town. Yeah. Did you grow up on a farm or a ranch or? Yeah. This was the big city for us, definitely. Boise, Boise, Caldwell. Caldwell was, was the big, big deal. city. Yeah, <laughs> Parma's about a couple thousand people, and we grew up on a dairy farm. Okay, what and years was that? So, uh, I grew up. I was born in 1975. Okay, and I'm the seventh of nine kids. I have five older brothers, an older sister, and then two little sisters. So there are nine kids, and lots of free labor on the dairy. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was but it was fantastic actually i mean growing up on it is, is it's a lot of work i mean my dad was a hard worker my mom was a hard worker they're just that old school style of you know no complaining just get after it yeah so do your parents still live in parma they do yeah on the same plot of land or no they they've to? they've got out of the dairy f- business and I was about a sophomore in high school. And, but they kept farming. And so, and then they moved around on different farms a few times. But they're still in Parma. Three of my sisters are in Parma with their families. Um, yeah, that's still, that's still home, home, you know. Um, you know, but it was, yeah. We would get up early in the morning and, Milk the cows. And, and when I stopped doing that, I guess it was, I started working at a, at a, at a pig farm, the Schmeck Pepper pig farm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd walk to that. It was kind of a neighbor across several fields, probably a mile or so as the crow flies. I worked for this, this, these pig farmers and that 3.35 an hour. Oh, nice. It was rough, man. <laughs> but I, I was catching gophers. I'd catch their gophers. Wait, that was your job? Yeah. You'd set traps. I'd set traps yeah. out in the fields. I'd dig up, dig in the holes and set a gopher trap. And then that was kind of the side job with the the pig farm. Because pig farms, I was cleaning out the pens and feeding the pigs. And then we'd go set water and do things on the farm too. But I would catch gophers. And I remember asking the guy, almost like a negotiation, hey, can I... I'll catch these gophers, but do I get to keep the tail? Because the tails was 75 cents back then. Ooh, you take to, that tail to, who? to yes. the ditch company. Oh, because the they were they were they were destroying their equipment. It, they would destroy the canals. They would oh. dig under a canal and then flood it flood out a whole canal if there was a gopher who popped up on the wrong side of the canal, right? Yeah. And so they would pay 75 cents a, a tail. And uh, he says, "Yeah, you can you can keep all the tills you want." Oh, <laughs> I can make the hold. Were you here? So that I was in middle school. Okay. Yeah, I was. So what is that? 12, 12 13, Yeah, something like that. And um, yeah, not having good boots. Sometimes I'd go to wrestling practice with like a stinky oh. sock. <laughs> it's bad. Pig manure, or pig poop on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably not too the worst bad. Kind. You know, for Parma, that's probably <laughs> like you fit right that's in. That's fair. No, that's fair. That's true. Yeah. So, did you like working on the dairy farm? Did you like doing that, or did you think the whole time I can't cannot wait to, wait to get out of yeah. this place? Uh, could not wait to get out of there. Um, but 
it was interesting. My my folks, they they knew that too. They know that it was it's tough life. It's a good life. It's great for the family because you're with your mom and dad all the time. You're with your brothers and sisters all the time. So that's really good. And you learn how to work hard. But they were, all of them said, uh, or all my mom and dad told all the kids, go get an education. Get out of here and go get an education. And by the time it got to me, I'm the seventh kid. It's just like, that's what you do. You leave, you go to college, go on a mission. You know, that's how it works. So it's kind of set for me. So there was no question of you saying, Dad, I want to come back and take over. I want to be the next generation of farm, you know, dairy farmers in Parma. No, no, never, <laughs> it never, it never was, uh, never on the table. And then did you work any other jobs in high school? Did you work anything like, what? you know, did you see yourself as when you grew older that you said, yeah, I want to do my own thing. Or did you see yourself doing something else? You know, I, that's a funny question. I, I, I know that, um, being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur now, uh, a lot of a lot of guys would dream of that, but I didn't. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't for a long time. Just not farm, not farming. That was it. Not working on the dairy. Yeah. Uh, not working on the pigs. <laughs> not that stuff. But I didn't know. I didn't know for a, a long time. Did it matter to you what you? I mean, it, most people or a lot of people don't really think about or or have any serious thought put into it. But some people you know, are really intent on what they want to do when they grow up. But it sounded like you just enjoyed living in Parma and growing up on the farm. Yeah. And I, I always knew that I was going to go to college Yeah, and I didn't know what I was going to study, but I knew I was going to go. And fortunately, you know, I went on a mission for my church and went to Taiwan, learned Mandarin Chinese. And that helped me, right. That helped me come back to school and be able to focus on something specific. Um, and even during undergrad, I studying Mandarin, studying political science. I thought I was going to go to law school. That's what I thought. And I'm super pleased I didn't go that route. It's actually not me at all, at all. Uh, but at during undergrad, I knew I wanted to go on and get a business degree, get an MBA after that. So I just felt like I had some time to just let things percolate, and then I'd figure something out. And... Uh, so that that's, and and frankly, during college, I remember, you know, all my older brothers at that point had graduated from university, gotten master's degrees, gotten multiple degrees, and that there's a PhD in there, and there's, you know, all, lots of stuff, lots of higher degrees. I was really hell-bent to measure up to what my brothers and sister were doing that were older than me. That was kind of in the back of my mind, like, Some I can't be a child. Educated farmers. Oh, everyone! Yeah, they they're they're all super um, educated. Everyone's got more than a bachelor's degree. Everyone's got master's degrees or 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 beyond. You know. Do you feel like that's mostly because of your parents' encouragement? You said from the beginning they were saying, "Go get an education." How how did that? Yeah, I think it was um, their encouragement. It was also this um, n- just knowing that. Education is going to get us out of Parma. It's going to get us off the farm and we can go do something else. And so there's, and then just being, that kind of drove everyone to try to excel and try to do more things and see more things. And it was, um, I, I suppose, a combination of that. 
And were your parents educated as well? They both? So, yeah, my uh, they both went to college, but mom went, I think, for a year and then got married to my dad. And dad went to that the LDS Business College in Salt Lake for, I think, a couple years. And then he wor- started working. Uh, he was working in Salt Lake as a banker. Yeah. And then he came back to Parma where he grew up where and joined my grandpa's farm. So him and his two brothers farmed after. So he didn't do a lot of college either. Yeah. yeah. But they knew it was important. They encouraged it a lot in your in their children. Yeah. And this just this idea of, you know, working hard and persevering was really instilled in us all, I think. Um, I remember when I was young, I was probably seven or eight, that age where you don't quite do a lot of work yet. You, you still play when everybody else is working. And I was making fun of my older brothers. There was just two and three years older than me that they were working. I was laughing at them. And my dad overheard it. They were chopping wood is what they were doing, stacking it, chopping it. And I was laughing at him while I was like making mud pies with my little sister, you know. And he said, if you can laugh at them, then you can work. And so from then on, that was it. I was in. And I was got into the rotation of milking cows in the morning and the whole thing, getting up at four in the morning before school, four in the cl- four o'clock after. I should have just kept my mouth shut, right? Uh, yeah. Is that your biggest regret, you think, it's looking back my, on that? One of my biggest regrets all time. <laughs> your little sister saw that and was like, nope, I'm not saying anything for a learned. decade. <laughs> That's funny. Exactly. So question, though, what what is your counsel to your kids about education in college? It's changed so much since you and I and, and a lot of us went. Do you feel like that's still the same attitude that you have for your kids? You know, it has changed, right? They're, the value you get out of college isn't necessarily um, what it's always cracked up to be, right? There's, uh, there are certainly degrees you can get that don't make any sense, that don't have a return. Right, so I think if you look out for that, uh, and be mindful and careful about what you study and where you go, the the amount of money you pay, I think college is still fantastic. I'm a big proponent of it for sure. And and around our house, it's just a foregone conclusion. Kids are going to college. That's just the way you talk about it that way. And I think it eventually, it, it just becomes that, you know. So you were studying in college. Did you go to Utah or did you go to Idaho or what college? Yeah, I first year I went to Ricks. Okay. And so I, in 93, I graduated high school, went to Ricks College for a full year. Then I went to Taiwan for two. For a school or just uh, Oh, that's for the mission, right? So that was the mission. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then came back and I, I finished at Ricks in another semester. And then I transferred to Provo, BYU oh, okay. Provo. Provo. And then you... You, you were studying business management. Well, I didn't yet. So I was studying Chinese and uh, um, political science. And then uh, knowing that, that I was going to go get a business degree later on. Because after. you knew, uh, how did you know? Why did you, you thought business was your thing, probably? I just thought uh, political science isn't going to do the job. <laughs> that was the big one. I thought, you know what? I've got to do something and to tie all this in. And uh, I figured an MBA would be a good way to do it. Um, How were you funding 
this education. So undergrad, I, I, I got through undergrad without any debt. Uh, just had some scholarships and had a job all the time. and Like doing what? Uh, I, I drove, uh, I worked for the moving crew at BYU. Okay. Yeah, and so I drove big trucks around. It's fantastic. Yeah. Paid better than three thirty-five. Paid slightly, better. slightly better. Maybe not a lot, honestly. Not a lot but. better. Uh, but you know, I was able to have. I mean, coming from the farm and lots of kids, I got some Pell grants. Mm-hmm. That helped a ton, and a couple little scholarships, and then a job, and and then church school. It's not too expensive. Yeah, right. Um, but I always had a job through college, and then was pretty careful with. With with what we sp- what I spent and stuff. So what you were doing so far jobs we've had so far are uh, pig gopher killer, gopher killer, uh, mucking the pig. Yeah, sty. more gopher bounty hunter. Okay, right? that's right. <laughs> that's you're right. Dog. Not cold blood, really. Yeah. It's, you know, and then um, dairy farmer, milking cows, and mover. Now, how did these these influence you at all? Were you like, okay, I know I don't want to do any of these things. Is that kind of how it was, or it's just like you knew it was just yeah, I, those were all like, it's all manual labor. Yeah. It's all, um, and yeah, I knew it wasn't going to be what I was going to do. I just, and you know, looking back, it's funny. Somehow I was voted most likely to succeed, but I had no idea. I mean, you, you just have no idea, but maybe other people saw more m- more of a plan for me than I did. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just knew it wasn't going to be. This is in high school, obviously. That was right? back in high school. And so you must add some. You were kind of put together. You must have been probably pretty good grades in high yeah, school. Yeah, good grades. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good grades. And um, out in a small town like Parma, you can play every sport. You can be involved in every, you know, everything from, you know, playing football to being on the drama, being in drama and in the plays and honor society and, uh, you know, all the stuff. And uh, it's fantastic. It's, it's, that's great. Um, but, Additional jobs, when I finished BYU, and this is not a good advertisement for BYU undergrad, but I started, uh, I, I worked at a, a dot-com, because it was the dot-com craze right around the year 2000, right? Worked at a little dot-com, freeport.com and Provo. And then I started driving truck right after that. CDL. Yeah. Got my CDL, because I had my CDL from, from that campus company. job. Yeah. Yeah. And I was driving truck. In Idaho, Utah, uh, Nevada, and that's when, that's when Sarah, my wife, we met, and she fell in love with a truck driver at a truck stop. Or what? what no, did you, yeah, you no. made it sound like. <laughs> yeah, I did. That didn't lead in right. <laughs> that's the time. Of, no, I I met her. Now nah, that's funny. I met her my last semester of school. Okay, and uh, and then, but we dated. In earnest, while I was driving truck. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. And then, so you were dating Sarah, and you said, you know, I got this sleeper van. Let's get married. Let's get hitched. Travel the country. <laughs> travel yeah, the open road. Yeah, hit the open road, you know. Today's last Cowboys out there on yeah. the road. So I'm really anxious, Brian, to get into your story as far as, so after college, you're driving truck. And, you know, there's a huge portion of your life that you spent in international lands. And so what led you, what led you and your family to move over to China? How did that go? Was it a long road or was it somebody offered or? Yeah. So right after the truck driving and all that, Sarah and I got married 
And then we went immediately down to Arizona. I went to Thunderbird and went to, that's an international business school. So it's, it's an MBA, but it's focused on international, like a good portion of the students are from other countries. So after graduating from there, I took a job in Shanghai and that was in 2002. So with an MBA, I went to Shanghai, Sarah and I, and, um, it was a big marketing company there that I, I got a job with and I was with them for about a year and a half. And then, um, I left that, I left that company and joined another one in Shanghai that, uh, it was a small trading company. Um, and it was a father and son from Canada that I, that, um, that I worked for and I kind of helped them run the sourcing side of their business. So I need to go back a little bit. You're you're in Arizona and you're going through your MBA. Okay. What is the sales pitch to get you and your wife to move to China? Because I know for a fact if I came to my wife and said, "Hey, going to Hong Kong, baby. Like, <laughs> get ready." I mean, that Not would be Hong a tough Kong. time. Shanghai. Shanghai, I mean, Beijing, whatever it is. You know, what how did that go? So for me, I was all in. Yeah, because that was kind of my life, right? I'd spent, I'd been to China on internships uh, through college. Okay, I skipped that. Um, and Sarah, believe it or not, when I met Sarah, she had, she was talking to me about China. She had gone to China on a trip with her brother and some friends, just like before I ever met her, like a tourist, uh, just visit. as a tourist. Okay, yeah, and so she's you know, coming to me and talking about China and how she knows all this stuff about China. I'm like, girl, you don't know nothing. What are you talking <laughs> about? And, and it just sort of went that. And so for me, I was, I was going to go to Asia and I had an opportunity, uh, um, to go. And Sarah was, she was all in. Yeah. It, I mean, guys who live a long time over there, it's because their wives make it work yeah. over there. Otherwise you just don't last. You like two years instead of 15. Yeah, you both have to be in. That you makes sense, right? Otherwise, it's not going to, it's a big culture difference. And if you're not okay with that, then. Absolutely. And, and in China, we distinctly remember when we made the decision to stay because it's a, it's a very different culture. Uh, things that we consider rude, they don't. You know, cutting in line and talking super loud and, spitting and chewing with your mouth open and all those things that are kind of like rude to us they don't feel rude about it at all and and it, and those are the some of the things that we you just have to get used to and there would be haters that would come and live there and just not like it and complain about it and early on we fell into that and then we decided you know what it was a distinct day we made the decision we're not going to do that anymore we're going to be we're going to be all in in china we're this is home and we're going to, we're going to look on the bright side of everything. And that decision allowed us to stay where we saw in 15 years, we saw lots of people come and lots of people go. And we were always there for that. You know, we were always there. And a lot of people just couldn't make that mindset change. Yeah. That's not simple. Now I think uh, motivation for me to go to China to visit sounds really thrilling, exciting, to live there long term, I think I'd have to be pretty financially motivated. Um, it doesn't sound like it was that for you, or was it? I mean, was were they good? I mean, you're getting paid by a Chinese company, so it's not like you're getting paid American wages in China. Is that correct? Yeah, so I started out with this company called Global Sources, and 
you'll be familiar with Alibaba, yeah? Mm-hmm. So uh, Global Sources was came around way before Alibaba. Alibaba came onto the scene probably 10 years after Global Sources was going. And um, I worked for Global Sources, and it was a... No, it was a decent... It was a decent package for a kid uh, without a lot of work experience. You know, I they paid for housing and trips home and insurance and a, a decent salary. You know, so it was it was a nice start. Actually, I I could have I was offered a job with out of Thunderbird um, graduate school to go back east to the Washington D.C. and work for. Um, one of those government agencies. I had that job. Like the State Department or what government agency? The the CIA, actually. Oh, one Trans- of those government one of those. agencies. One of those. <laughs> yeah. And I almost did it because it was super cool. Yeah. I um, mean, you're, you know, you get some street cred. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, pack some heat, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. And I almost did that, but I thought, nah, go to China. We'll make money, more money sooner, right, in China. And... That's really where my strengths, I think, would be. That's what I was. That was my thinking back then. I got to go to China, make something work there, and I, I didn't know what it would be. Just didn't know, but I figured it be something. So employed for at least you talked about a year and a half. I think at that first marketing company that was Global Sources. Yeah. Then you changed over to the Canadian business. Yep. And um, and helping them with their sourcing. So primarily your your focus was uh, like probably manufacturing and then selling it. Exporting is kind of what it was. Yeah, I mean, so Global Sources is like Alibaba. They're just like a clearinghouse. Uh. They're a platform, right? So it was a, tons of different categories, and we were really just helping manufacturers export market. Not We didn't buy or sell anything. We was just advertising. Then the Canadian company was was actually buying and selling, right? They were, they, they we focused on a little bit of uh, everything, Car parts, neckties, love sacks, uh, all kinds of things like that. Stuff, stuff, toys, plush toys. But what I felt like, you know, the first job was a real broad look at all, everything going on in China. The second one really kind of honed down to a specific, um, it's still a dozen different product categories, but it was much more specific than the first job. I started to down and then later on it, it got even smaller what did you do for these companies what was your position um so the first one was with global sources it was sales it was like hitting the streets in shanghai selling to chinese manufacturers uh a a marketing package like this is how we can sell your products to buyers abroad it was brutal I mean, I'm not a salesperson. That it's not my strength, I don't think. And it was hard. And you were in a different culture, in a different land, talking to people in a foreign tongue. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. I mean, cold calls, like literally showing up on their door, knocking on the door, and they had very. It was hard to. It was hard to make that work. Were they used to cold calling type of approaches for sales? Um. They get them. They don't pay much attention to them. But yeah, uh, we we would. Yeah, we we just um, 
hit the streets, beat you know, beat the streets. It was tough. Uh, they they didn't. It, we didn't have a lot of success doing it. Is that what you switched? Because you're like, this isn't very fun. Let's do something else. Yeah, I ended up. Actually, it's funny. I ended up in that same company, transitioning out of sales and then going into this executive education course. So again, trying to, and this was trying to educate these Chinese manufacturers on how to export market. So we came up with a course that had a curriculum and it was three days and they would pay money to come attend it. And so I kind of ran that course and that was okay. It was kind of cool. But the real, the, the, the reason why I left is they wanted us to move from Shanghai down towards Hong Kong to Shenzhen and live there and work there. And I, we didn't want to go there. We just wanted to stay up in Shanghai. So that's really why I left that company. Now, Shanghai is a very big city. Yeah. Like very big. And so I'm assuming par- apartment living. Yes. Yeah. Pretty much probably your whole time there. Is that, yeah. 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 It was all high rises and, um, yeah. What was your uh, wife doing during this time? She worked at Global Sources for a while too. Okay. She was a copywriter there. Um, so we would, yeah, take the bus or the subway down to work together. And it was simple times, man. Off at five o'clock. And he didn't think about it again until the next day. Now, uh, copywriting, did she speak Mandarin as well? She didn't, but she learned there. So her, her first <clears throat> four months there, she really studied hard on Mandarin. And, and, uh, and then had a tutor throughout. And she got to be really good. I mean, is she writing copy in man? Is that the question, or is it English? In, oh, in English. Okay, so she's. You guys are marketing to English buyers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. overseas buyers. Mm-hmm. That's how we could help the Chinese manufacturers, because they didn't have access to those buyers. And global sources like Alibaba kind of tries to connect the two. Mm-hmm. So that's that idea. Um, what was your position in the Canadian firm? I was the uh, the uh, COO. Operating officer, yeah. And the owners, were they in China or were they in Canada? Uh, they were in China, too. Okay. That's how I met them. Yeah. And the draw to bring them there is because <coughs> this is where most things are created in the world. And it's good. If you're if you're creating items and want to sell them, that's where you should be. Is that kind of? Absolutely. Everyone was sourcing out of China. It was kind of the Wild West. It was easy to move things, things through customs. Shipping was plentiful and cheap, and everything could be done over there. I mean, it still can be, but there's it's it's just changed a lot. Back then was, you know, kind of anything goes, anything could be found. You know, just give me a few weeks, I'll get it. It was just crazy times, and and th- th- that was a company of about uh, twenty twenty five people or so. It's good sized. You know, for sourcing. Um, and one of our big accounts was Lovesack. And we did all the cut and sew for them. So we'd make all the outer, you know, coverings for their big bean bags. Were you uh, happy? <clears throat> Were you happy during this time? What, what do you remember? Yeah, it was a great time. It was really fun. Shanghai is fantastic. Hmm. So fun. And we had a small branch, uh, church branch. And <clears throat> there were 30, 40% of the branch were young married couples without kids. So we would all get off work at five o'clock and we'd, we'd meet up and try all these great restaurants and 
go do the fun stuff. And it was just really fun. It was a great time. Yeah, great place to be. Uh, how long were you working with the Canadian firm? Uh, this is a really good experience you're having. Um, <laughs> do you feel like you were successful? Yeah, I think so. You know, I feel like there was growth. We, you know, the company grew. Um, it was, yeah, it was not always easy. I mean, um, it's a father and a son business. And I'm kind of stuck right in the middle of that. And it didn't always work out well. Um, but I, those are great guys, great company. Um, I think I, I really enjoyed it and I did learn a lot. Yeah. So, um, and your wife, did she move over there with you? Yeah. And again, no problem staying there the whole time. She was like, you guys were content to stay there. Yeah, I, th I think she... <laughs> She's different, man. She was just super into it. And, I mean, <clears throat> you can, living in China, you can have a, a maid, super cheap. You go get foot massages, super cheap. Um, and, you know, she started a little jewelry business at that time in Shanghai. So there are these big markets with selling all kinds of things. And one building was jewelry, like pearls and stones and she started putting together this jewelry and then she would sell it back to um, jewelry dealers in the States mm. and was just making a killing doing it. Mm. I was like, man, I'll be your secretary. <laughs> Let's get this thing going. She was doing really well and having fun doing it. So yeah. it was a great time. Yeah. And you were with that firm for how, like, what was your tenure there? Uh, about two years. Okay. Yeah. So this is completely foreign story to us. I mean, t take us through how it all went. Um, At some point, you did made the decision to come back. So it's like, how did you get from these this place back here to the Treasure Valley? Well, before that, <clears throat> I left that tr Canadian trading company, mm -hmm. um, and I joined. I, I I got hired by a guy named Davis, who was from North Carolina, and he was in the furniture business. And he, I started with him in Shanghai. Um, and he was traveling to the U.S. and meeting with his customers. And he needed someone on the Chinese side to manage the factories, the production, and all that kind of stuff. And so that's really where I first got into the furniture business is with in, in that third job in Shanghai. Um, and that's where all the difficulties started. It really was. That's where all the things got. It started getting tough because I got into, you know, eventually started my own business from that and you know i think when you're an employee you just life's pretty easy when you're the owner of the business it's it's tougher and there's things you got to take care of it all it all comes the buck stops with you right um but I, so i worked for that company and he had a staff of chinese uh management and one of the toughest things was when I started working there, I think the, that manager lady, her name was Tracy, she didn't like me at all. And it was really hard. That was really one of the first times I'd had that kind of uh, interpersonal difficulty with anybody. Uh, you know, it was tough. She made, biz it, she made it just hard to go to work. Now, why do you think she didn't? I mean, I've met you here. This is the first time I've met you. Seemed like a charismatic guy. 
Well, why? Why didn't she like you? Honestly, I think it was um, a bit of a threat from a foreign guy coming into that company where she ran it prior to me. And even when I came in, she still ran it. But I, I, I was talking directly to the owner without her. Like I was, a, you know, so I think it was a threatening position to her. And I speak, speak good Mandarin. So I could go do my own thing with the factories and I could work on projects for the boss or for a customer and she didn't even know anything about it. She didn't have to anyway. So, you know, I, I may have made mistakes there too. You know, I could have probably worked with her better, but boy, she made it hard. Mm. It was super hard. And people around me, I remember them saying, man, you got to get out of there. Like, you got to quit. And I thought, no, there's something, there's something good here. With just the work you're doing, because you yeah. can see the potential with furniture. Yeah. yeah. So I stuck around, and, you know, I just kept at it. And I was with that company for about five years. And we, man, I, I had a company car. Um, Is having a car in Shanghai rare? Uh, it was. Yeah, not so much now, but it was. And then to drive it was crazy but it was so funny you go <laughs> i remember getting their driver's license or chinese driver's licenses right if you had a u.s one you didn't have to take a driving test um but you would have to take a physical and then you'd have to take a written test and the written test was 100 questions you had to get 90 right but right before the test you could look at the 100 questions and read them and just like read it twice and know the answers and then go in and take it. So Sarah and I both did it at the same time. Both passed. And then we had to go do the physical. The physical test or just a general physical? Like a, like a general physical. physical. Fit. Oh, okay, gotcha. see things. And it was classic. It was like, show me your hands. No. <laughs> and so you lift up your hands and, okay, check. Good. Uh, close that eye. Close that eye. And... And that, I mean, it was like virtually it. It took some blood pressure and it was the craziest thing. Are you alive? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Human? Check. You're in. Yeah. Uh, but driving was, that was crazy too. That was, uh, I mean, you, it was again like the Wild West. You just, because they, the Chinese aren't, hadn't been driving long. At that point, I'd been driving for 20 years, right? And, they had been driving for six months. <laughs> so it was just really bad driving. And you could break all kinds of traffic laws without without getting in trouble. Especially, I guess, if the norm is to cut in line. Yeah. And if you take that into an automobile. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just... Yeah, I'll have a hard time. Yeah. That was super fun. So what prompted you to leave that position? I know sometimes when, I, when we have conversations, people say, you know, the best way to start your own company is to hate your job so much you leave well you know i really enjoyed it and i was well taken care of right and i was learning the business and i was meeting all these customers which is the key um so i'm grateful for all that time at that company but what i started to see was the owner wasn't he wasn't really honest and he was doing some things that were not uh, they just weren't real fair to the customers. 
dishonest not with the employees as much, but more with the with with the customers. Yeah. You know, for example, there's this customer we had in Texas who was a wholesaler. So they'd bring it bring in product and then sell it out to retailers. And we were working on a project and it was it was a cow leather sofa that he had big plans for. All his customers wanted it. It was going to be a big deal for him. And I remember uh, my boss being on the phone with that customer talking about that production run and wanting an update. And my boss said, hey, it's on the way. It's on the water. We've already produced it, loaded it, shipped it. It's coming to you. And it was literally not even started. It was not even, hadn't even begun. So meantime, the customer doesn't know. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know that it's months, going to be months after that. And all his customers are preparing for the date that he thinks it's coming in at. And they're advertising for that date because it's going to be like a Labor Day promotion or, you know, whatever. And I'm just thinking, if I want to stay in this business, because I put a lot of time at that point, five, six years into that business, in the furniture business, and I got to get out of, I got to get out from him. You think he was giving you like a black eye almost? Yeah. 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 I can't be in it much longer and then, and then me not to have some of that tarnish. So it wasn't the ethics of it. It was more like, well, if I financially, <laughs> no, I understand. It's both, right? It's, I, I suppose, no, it was very self, um, uh, protecting myself. Yeah. It really was. The ethics weren't great. But it was like, if I want to have a business in this in this industry, I got to... That means you've been thinking about it. You were thinking, okay, I like this area. I like this industry right now. I want to keep going there. And were you thinking your own business already, like years before this? No, that's the funny thing. I, I really was... I probably would have worked for him for a long time. My wife is much more entrepreneurial naturally than I am. She was always saying, hey, you should try it on your own. You should do it on your own. You should think about it. And I was like, it's got to be a layup. That's what I'd tell her. I, it's got to be a layup for me to do it. It's got, I mean, it's just got to be right there and I'll, and I'll try it. And it, <laughs> I think that was the, the, the final straw that got me there. Uh, at that point, I knew how to, I, I had good coworkers. I knew how to run the business on the China side. I knew several U.S.-based customers um, some had started to fall away from that company because they didn't like the owner mm -hmm. and how he was, they, they didn't, you know, they saw too that he wasn't completely Eventually honest. you're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really the layup right there. I don't understand the benefit of telling a customer that it's going to show up and giving them a date. I mean, cause you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. And I don't, I don't understand off that. The pain is all you're doing. Yeah. It's putting off the pain. It really was. And it makes no sense. It, it was really hard to watch and hard to be a part of. I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And it, that was just, you know, yeah. in this business, you in, in trading, you only have your reputation. I, I suppose in business in general, you really only have your reputation. And mine, I had to protect at that point. I had to, like, get out and do my own thing. And, and so that's when I decided to break out and start. Okay, so Treasure Valley Interior. 
Yeah. You named it there? You named it Treasure Valley Interiors over there. Yeah. No, you didn't. Yes, did. you did. did. Oh, that's awesome. A little awesome. throwback. Uh-huh. <laughs> so throwback take us Parma. through the start. Take us through the start of that. Wait, is Parma in the Treasure Valley? I don't know. It, it, I mean, it's definitely on the edge I don't of the know about <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what valley it'd be part of, though. So We've got the Apple Valley out there, too. Okay. It's in between valleys. It's uh, <laughs> Apple Valley small. Well, we claim Treasure Valley. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just um, decided to hang out my shingle. And it was funny thing about it was when I did, and I, I let some of those customers who had fallen off, I let them know. And the one, this one guy said, dude, you don't know how long I've been waiting for you to say that. Because he wanted to give me business. He wanted me to come to that re- realization and then start my own. And then he was going to give business my way. Was there any non-compete scenario or was it just... You know what? I didn't, I didn't have a single contract uh, with anybody. That wasn't common in China? You know, it is, but the guy I worked for wasn't, it wasn't common for him. I didn't, you know, we just, it was a handshake deal. For five, six years, it was a handshake deal. My current employees, it's all handshake deals. There's no contracts with my employees. Um, so if you're going to win the customer, you're going to win because you're going to do a better job. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them when things go wrong, I'm going to be honest with them. And we're going to manage the situation, manage the situation, do the best we can. But just be upfront with them and tell them what's going on and do what I say I'm going to do. And that alone, I mean, it's simple, right? Just do what you say you're going to do. Be honest. That goes a long way. It goes a long way. There's just, I think, you know, too, too, too often people don't do that, those basic things. And reputation suffers from that and business suffers from that. But so anyway, we got started, and it was slow going. Super pay cut, slow. obviously pay cut. But your wife more entrepreneurial, so she was like, "Yeah, no doubt." She was supporting you the whole time. She was supporting me. You whole had time. kids, I'm assuming, at this time. Yeah, uh, two. So stress level, you were feeling very stressed. Very stressed because what I left to start the business was six figure salary, housing paid, trips home insurance, car, and international schooling for the kids. That's no joke. International schooling in Hangzhou, because at that time we were living in Hangzhou, which is two hours west of Shanghai. Kind of the treasure valley of Shanghai. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I've deemed it. <laughs> kind of a big deal there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's 20 grand a kid per oh, year. Yeah. That's a lot of sofas. That's <laughs> a lot of sofas, man. So it was a big deal to go from that, and you add all that up, that's good number, then to, to, to zero and starting out every month at zero. And that's the way I started thinking. I had to think about it. I start every month at, 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 at zero, man. I got to make it happen. And it just took longer than I thought it would. Guys who had reached out to me and said, man, we're, we'll support you. We're super excited you're you're doing this. We'll support you by what they mean is they'll send orders, right? It just took longer than I ever thought it would, and uh, you know, we were we always made money, you know, uh, and within a year, I was making the salary that I that I had plus some, 
So it didn't take too long. Within a year, I was back to where um, I had been. And then from there, it's gone up. But the less the things I remember were takes longer than I ever expected. Um, and work doesn't feel like work anymore. It's very different. When I, like I mentioned previously at 5 p.m., you're off. When I was working for Davis, I would, you know, would work Fridays. I'd work some Saturdays. But I would never work Sunday, and I would really carve out. I, I'd be upset if he called me on a Friday night. You know, I'm out with my wife or something. I'd be upset about it. But when I owned the business, it was all different. I didn't feel like it was work. I was like. That's good then, right? You're saying. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. The upside was all you. Now, every, yeah. Everything that good that happens in this business is because you're going to make it that way. And so, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Um. So we just, yeah, we started, we started rolling along and, uh, I had this one account that really focused on leather and high end leather. We'd buy it from Italy, bring in these Italian cow hides and make beautiful furniture. And that was, that was a really nice bit of business for me where we were working, you know, we got to where we were shipping about 20 containers a month of leather. Which for us at that young time, it was, that was really important. And that's, um, that was growing along with promotional business. And I mean, promotional be like cost plus world market stuff. Less, less, uh, the retail price was lower for that, those kind of goods. Right. So I kind of had two, two different things I was doing and, um, that was rolling along growing. And then that business had some that factory had some debt that we didn't know about that they had loaned out to other factories and then that uh, those other factories defaulted and it it kind of dominoed back to them so the factory that was making the the furniture or the factory that was ordering i guess i don't understand your what you're factory. saying your customer or your manufacturer is that your question yeah. Yeah, the, the factory that was making our product. Okay, so us. you would go to the factory, you would buy the product from the factory, you'd sell that to the customer. So that factory had some debt. Yeah. They had some debt that uh it was overwhelming and they couldn't they couldn't get it paid. So that factory went out of business. So that was like I was gut wrenching. That was gut wrenching because we, we lost that business. I lost all that income. You had to say there was no alternative. That was it? No good alternative. Anyway. No good alternative. Nothing that we could move to quickly. And more importantly, the customer, the retailer, and that several retailers, they can't wait. They move on, you know? And did you tell me, like, I'm sorry, I, I'll do the best I can, but I understand if you have to go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. And they, they had to go somewhere else, you know? Um. We had, we'd had a nice little niche and that was it blown up, you know? So that was, that was super tough. I remember being just really gutted because it was, we'd been making money and, and then it, 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 that all went away. Did it become an ongoing concern? Yeah. As in, you're not sure if you can still make it. If yeah. But I, I, again, it was just like, I think I'm in a good spot. We're going to keep at it. We'll keep going. Um, and we did, you know, we, we recovered and we kept doing, you know, good, good product and we were growing. And, um, the next big thing that happened was a few, 
few years later, our, our factory is a separate factory now from the one that went out of business. It's a different factory burnt down. Like I had been there that day. I was there and I was in the parking lot. I finished my work that day. I'd been in the parking lot and I heard screams and a commotion and then some people running around and then smoke was everywhere and it didn't take long. And that thing was just up, just smoke everywhere. Every, you know, the, the, f- at first floor, there was, um, they'd work with glue, gluing on like the, the foam seat cushions and gluing them together and stuff. And that glue in the air is really flammable. And so it caught. And then it, and it was next to foam, next to cardboard, next to wood. And it was just a mess. So that was a really, that was another time that was really hard because that happened in December. And Chinese New Year is right after that. And you get, that's really like a fiscal end of the year. Plus, it's just a. No one works. No one works. Everything's closed up. All debts are paid. Everything's got to be finished up, cleaned by Chinese New Year every year. And we had about a month to ship out about 80 containers to a big customer. Um, we had other business too to ship out. But all those people, I could call them up and say, hey, man, we just had a fire. And everyone was cool and everyone would understand. They said, well, just get me when you can. You know, start shipping again when you can. But this big customer that had 80 containers, it's Fred Meyer. They don't play. They're like, I didn't even tell them because it's no use telling them. We just had to think, figure it out. And so this was like, this is one to me one of the like most amazing things that happened in China because for me is because we had lost everything in that fire. But we had the designs of the of the for the sofas that we were making, and we went and found another factory that was willing to help us out before Chinese New Year. Like, just let us use their facility, let us use their workers, bring in our style, and knock out eighty containers and ship it out on time. I was, I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing to me that they would come around and help us out. And support us like that in a really hard time, because otherwise we'd have been we'd have lost it. You're paying them, right? They're, it's they're oh sure, yeah. You're paying them, but still, it was an inconvenience to them because they had to share yeah time, space, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's not easy for them. They're busy too. End of the year, everybody's getting stuff out before Chinese New Year. That breaks up about a month where nothing's produced. So you really had to rush. Everybody's rushing. Everybody's busy. Now nothing. Um, did it, did it have anything to do with the fire? Did they know about the fire and they were like sympathetic to that? Yeah. Okay. They were. And they were, you know, they were sympathetic to me personally and to the the people that were left from that factory and from and they were sympathetic to the guys I worked with, like my employees. I mean, they were just, it was, it was a special thing, man. It was really like heartwarming to me and it gave me like a lot of love and hope for everything going on for, for what we're doing in China. It was awesome. Now, you talked about two really difficult things that happened. One factory closing because of debt, one factory closing because of fire. It didn't exist anymore. Now, how do these compare to more recent problems with something like COVID, tariffs, those kind of problems? You know, I, I think the problems today are bigger. They're bigger. But those uh, seemed more devastating. At the time, the fire, losing everything we'd done, 
and losing that factory to debt, that was devastating. This here, we're kind of just rolling with the punches now. We just roll with it and keep at it and keep going. I mean, COVID, COVID was COVID was tough. It shut everything down for a long time. So before you get into COVID, though, that was, you know, the factory burning down probably happened fairly close to when you moved back to America. Is that correct? It was still three or four years before. And then what prompted you moving back to America? Okay. Um, my kids were getting older. Yeah. And you growing up in China, they, we'd come home every summer. We'd come here every summer, right? But they were sort of that, it's called like a third country culture where they're not really, they're not Chinese, but they weren't quite American either. Like when it, they were in this weird little no man's land that they didn't quite fit either place, which is great. There's a lot of great things about them learning Mandarin growing up and living overseas and, and, and those things. But our oldest was going to be an eighth grader. And we thought this would be, we just didn't want to stay in China all through high school. Felt like that's just a little too much for the kids. They're going to end up living here and going to school here in college and whatnot. We just felt like they needed to kind of re-enter society on the U.S. side and not be where. I mean, when they first came, they didn't know what a Pop-Tart was. You never heard of a Pop-Tart as a kid growing up over there. You just don't have it. You don't see it. You know, just different things that you... You, you wouldn't know. And so we felt like we didn't want that to go on. Costco. Plus Costco. Costco's there. Plus, we, we were paying big bucks for international school. At yeah, $20,000 a kid. Yeah. And at that um, point, we had you, four kids. Yeah, that's like a salary. Yeah. yeah. A lot of sofas. A lot of sofas. A lot of yeah, sofas. Put it in sofa money, yeah. <laughs> I calculate everything in gopher tails or sofas. <laughs> so I calculate everything. <laughs> That's a whole heap of gopher tails. Oh, that's that's a whole heap of gopher tails. <laughs> so you move back, seamless transition? Um, yeah, I think so. For me and Sarah, super seamless. It was fantastic. We can't, we love it here. We love being here. It's so convenient and easy and clean air and sports. It's fantastic. I think our kids had tr more trouble than we did, for sure. Just because they had friends, right? They're leaving friends they're, and culture, right? Leaving friends and then entering like middle school culture in the U.S. is tough. When you're you, pretty pretty sheltered on the China side, coming here was it, it. You know, it's like it's like real world middle school. It's with all that stuff that happens in middle school. So it was tough, I think. Um. But, you know, I, when we first came back, I was traveling. You know, I'd go back to China 10 times a year. I was going back a lot and then co before COVID, right? And, and I would go because our customers were going. You know, say, for example, Down East Home, I'm working on a project, and they want to go see it before they buy it. So they'll fly over. You'll and, meet them over there, take them to the factory, show it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just got customers are going at all different times so that's why i go so often you still you said until covid has it picked back up now is that going to no. be the norm um i haven't been to china for two and a half years because of covid 
because they have really strict, um, really strict quarantine requirements, like three weeks. Oh, I see. Well, they have a zero COVID policy, right? Yeah. It's a disaster. No, it's a total disaster. They shut down the ports. They shut down Shanghai. You've, you've seen all that on the news for a, a couple dozen cases. And they just shut it all down. It's not going to For a city work. the size of... Yeah. It's 25 million people. A couple dozen cases shuts down an entire... And that's like, I mean, that's a huge part of the economy. The ports, everything, that's like... And, and they're feeling it. They're, they're really feeling it. I, I think they're in a hard spot because they've had this draconian stance this is our policy this is how we're going to treat it but it's affecting the economy it's slowing i mean it's just slowing everybody down you can't produce you can't ship can't make money if you're not if you're not shipping mm-hmm. right so it's i don't think it'll last something's got to change so talk to us about the covid or actually before covid was a tariff yeah 2017 and the tariff if you're unfamiliar is when the United States was negotiating with the country of China and trying to even up certain aspects of, you know, how countries operate. And because those negotiations fell through, a tariff went in to about up to 25% on certain items and couches, I believe, sofas. I don't know about gopher tails, but sofas were included in that tariff. And so I'm not sure how much your margin was or is, and if that affected you and your customers or your sales very much take us through that yeah um that's that's exactly right it started out at a as a 10 percent tariff and then it went to 25 percent. and sofas were you know right in there and so we don't have that kind of margin at all and so the factories don't carry that much margin you know in fact the retailers don't really either so everyone took some Everyone took uh, took on some of that burden of the tariff. What I mean is the factory gave me a discount. So if it used to be, say I would buy it from them for 100 bucks, they would start selling it to me for a, an 8% discount. They'd give it to me for 92 bucks, And then I'd, I'd turn around and I'd give it, I'd put a couple more on uh, uh, discount. So I'd give it to that company for, say, 87.50. So there's a 12.5% discount on a $100 item that would then be sold to the customer. And when the customer would import it, they would then have to pay the 25% tariff. And it's and they save money because it's at $87, not 100 Yeah. But they're not really saving money. I mean, they're saving money from him. They're still ending up at the end of the day paying. Yeah, that $100, $100 item became $112.50. Yeah. 112 more. Yeah. Right? So they're, they're definitely paying more, but we're taking some on. And it actually... It actually worked. I mean, it business slowed down because of the the tariffs, and some of it went to Vietnam. Like there's a huge exodus of furniture to Vietnam because of no tariff. Um, but it it still worked. It actually crept along, and everyone sort of understood, and everyone sort of gave in a little bit, and then the person who pays it. Person who pays the final bill is Mrs. Mr. Mrs. Jones buying the sofa set. They're the ones who get the. They're the ones who are really paying the tariff. Yeah, me. Yeah. 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 You guys. You guys have to buy. You, you furniture retail buyers. You guys that buy retail. You chumps. <laughs> That's us. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, 
but that's why Vietnam is now exporting more furniture than China, which Vietnam's tiny. It's maybe 80 million people. And China's 1.45 billion. But Vietnam's shipping more furniture than China is because of that tariff. Does China want that back? Well, that's all? a great question. Because they don't really act like it. They don't really put up that much of a fight for this kind of industry that's pretty low-tech. You know, it's, it's manual labor. You know, there's not a lot of... Uh, value add in that at all um so uh but so i i don't know if they really want to pack but um there's a huge amount of people that that need it uh, furniture still employs a ton of people in china you know and so if they didn't have that job uh they you know they they there would be a lot of disgruntled workers so, and for us, we went to Vietnam with our promotional stuff. So, we developed a higher-end line, which is Helix Home, which is better-end furniture that costs more, but there's more value in it, more bells and whistles in it, and it can hold that tariff better. And our our promotional items went to Vietnam. And so, we, we ship from both, and it's been a, you know, it's been a nice way to balance that out i think the toughest part tougher than covid was this the freight problem that's still ongoing after the supply chain problem supply chain yeah that's still been harder can't deliver what you expect yeah. or hope to we've we've lost more business from that than from covid i mean this is a direct this is a result of covid right in the in the disruptions the supply chain issue is from covid but the freight going from say four grand for a 40 foot container to LA. It's even less. It was even less. It was three, 2,500, you know, 3,000 from Shanghai to LA. It went to $25,000. So a sofa that used to retail at, say, $899, the exact same sofa would then retail for $1,299. You know, four or $500 up just for no reason other than freight. So that that's actually been really hard um, to work through. That's why I'm in, in Mexico. We're uh, trying sure. to yeah, we're, we're sourcing in Mexico to try to um, give our customers another option because they go to the big, these big trade shows and they're like, we don't want to we don't want to hear anything about Vietnam product or China product. It's Not too interested. expensive. Just too expensive. Freight's too much. Can't and the delays. The delays. You know, if your if your ship is sitting outside of port of of Long Beach for maybe two or three months, potentially. Yeah. You'd have to swim out there and get it yourself. Exactly. <laughs> so Mexico has become important to try to yeah, give them a, another option. So how's your happiness level now? Have you made it, Brian? <laughs> no. No, but I, I'm happy. I mean, business is great. We had, you know, we had, uh, I mean, my family's great. Family's, everyone's healthy. And everybody's happy and doing well and growing and playing sports and doing those things that that I I, I love and and business is um, business is enjoyable. I've got good people that I work with, and it's I've made it in one aspect I I can say, and that is that I can kind of choose who I do business with now. You know, at the beginning you just take take anything you can get, right? 
Now I don't have to. And now I can be choosy. And You're saying customers even. Customers. I'm saying customers. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because there's some people you just don't. Not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And um, so that's kind of nice to be able to be able to choose who you do business with. What are your plans for both Helix and Treasure Valley? What are your plans moving forward? I mean, do you envision yourself working with your kids, selling it off, doing something else? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I'm open to one of my kids wanting to get into the furniture business. Uh, I kind of feel like it's farming, though. I kind of feel like it's like, why would anybody want to do this? But uh, it's been good for it's been good for honestly it's been good for us. But uh, uh, I think this is something that I'll be able to do, even at a reduced rate, for years to come. It's something that I can spend ten hours a week on, and it still sort of goes. It happens, and I can I could bring someone in who's younger, who's a young guy like like I was, and pay them well. And it could keep on going. Uh, and maybe eventually uh, a, a child would want to do it. One of my kids would want to grow up and do it. Or uh, or I would definitely sell it if it ever came came to that. But I, it's it's a little tricky because I'm kind of the business. You're the relationship. Right? Yeah, I'm, it's, it's, it's the relationship with you that really makes it a lot of valuable, very yeah, valuable. Yeah. So it'd be some sort of interesting structure. You know, stay on for a while and, uh, you know, make sure those relationships pass on. You know, but not only on the customer side, but on the factory side and factory or the my China personnel side. All that's important. It's all about the relationships. That's really the, the key to key to it on both sides of the water, right? In all in in all business. Was there anything you would do differently? Like looking back across all your experiences, would you? Do you go back in your mind and think ah, that was that was wrong, or that I should I shouldn't have made that decision to do that, or would you have changed anything? Yeah, um, you know, I think it would have been. You know, you learn from everything you do, right? Good, good and bad, uh, right or wrong. Uh, I think timing is what is the only thing I can go back and think. Well. I could have done this earlier. And what comes to mind is, you know, when, when before we shipped those less expensive promotional items to Vietnam to produce there, I had made a decision in China as costs were going up, as exchange rate was not in our favor, as tariffs were looming, all those things. I decided in China that we're going to take our factories here and make better goods. We're going to start making better stuff. And, and and so that you can so that you can handle the tariff so that you can stay in China longer because China was just getting so expensive. So you know, I guess doing that sooner would have been a little bit it would have put us set us up in a better place a little sooner because that business now, despite tariffs, despite um, COVID, despite freight, that business is growing. Like Helix stuff, that's year on year growing. It's crazy. Despite all that, it's growing. So that would have been um, 
if I had started that a little bit sooner, that would have been even better. Um, but, nah, otherwise, I, I think it's, it's, you know, a lot of bumps along the way. Really, lots of bumps. But um, I, I don't think I'd do anything too, too different. And then we didn't cover this, but did you need any financing when you started your business? Or did you just start from scratch? I started from scratch. Yeah, um, are you funding that or you, do you take the money from the customer and then buy? Yeah, see, so that, that's the beauty of it, right? I was able to, because of relationships with the China side, we would take the order, they would produce it, ship it. I, the customer would get it, pay me, and then I'd pay the factory. And the factory was okay waiting. I mean, that's yeah. like 90, 90 days, yeah. net 90 or net 120 even. Yeah, it was. It, so they would pay before we released the bill relating to them. So it'd be on the water for three weeks or so, and then they'd pay. And that's, but yeah, it was from, it was 90 days. Yeah. You know, from start to finish for sure. And so that allowed me to grow without any sort of. Inventory is a hard thing to try to keep up with. You have to buy first. Yeah. And to cash flow it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to cash flow it. And so we could grow it at, at any speed. As fast as I could bring in orders, we could grow. Yeah. So I was super fortunate there. And that's all because of trust built up built up over six seven years with these factories yeah you had credit your, your name had yeah credit. yeah that's awesome made a big difference and then uh one or two more questions here uh if you were looking if you went back to thunderbird in arizona that management school or any person coming out of college and you were to sit down with them or even a younger brian what would you tell them what would be the advice you would give them if you had an hour Mm. And they said, I, I want to follow in your path or I want to do what you do or I want to be as successful as you've been. What would be your keys to them? Well, I think one would be you got to stick with it. That's one thing I've learned. I mean, my greatest talent is probably sleeping. It's like the best thing I'm at. I'm good. <laughs> but other than that, I persevere. I really stick with it. And I think you're going to hit hard times. Things are going to happen. People aren't going to like you factory is going to burn down. There's going to be a tariff. There's going to be all these things happen. Um, but you got to stick with it. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, for me, it wasn't, I mean, I think I was going to say, evaluate what you think your strengths are and then really try to, um, build on those. For me, it was Mandarin, right? So I was able to go, I just decided to go over there and figure it out. And it worked, um, but um, that's a very clear-cut one. So, got to look inside and figure out what you feel your strengths are, and then really focus on those, build on those. I think, um, and then you got to marry well. You got to find someone that's gonna gonna stick with you. Thanks for listening to the Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at Jord B Hansen and at Brandon Minor to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.